Hi, and welcome to Journeys to Belonging podcast with host Dr. Eileen Winokur, featuring awesome educators and leaders who share their journeys, advice, and personal stories about feeling a sense of belonging. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome. This is my first uh, StreamYard Live with uh, guests, and so I'm really excited for this new chapter in my professional life, trying something new, and I'm really excited to have two guests on, two very special guests on, and um, so I, I do a blog, blog I, I podcast, I call it Journeys to Belonging, and I think a lot of what uh, my guests have uh, to talk about today has a lot to do with belonging. And so I'm really excited to have Nicole and Jason. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So um, I didn't really say too much. You're you're a newly published author. Well, actually, you're both published authors uh, since you collaborated on the book called I Can Learn When I'm Moving, Going to School with ADHD. And it sounds like it's been... I mean, I've had my journey, but it sounds like the two of you have had quite quite a journey in in Jason's nine years. So uh, I didn't really talk too much about you and Jason. Nicole, you want to go ahead and tell us what you do, um, a little bit more about the book before before we start with our questions? Sure, absolutely. Thank you very much for having us here. It's really exciting um, for people to read our story and to want to talk about our story um, it's, you know, something that we're still living. He's now he's 10, um, in fifth grade, but you know, it's, it continues to be a journey. And I know that this is a journey that, uh, you know, from sharing on social media and from blogging before I wrote the book, I know that a lot of people are also going through this journey as parents. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of teachers are also struggling to reach, um, kids that have ADHD. So I, I think that, our story and a lot, all of these stories need to start being told more and highlighted and shared. So that's what we're hoping to, to have come out of this. Yeah, and it's a really important conversation to have. I don't know what the statistics are here in Kuwait where, where I live, but I do know that uh, ADHD is, um, is quite high. Uh, in, in, in students and also in adults. Uh, I think a lot of it goes undiagnosed. We didn't really talk about it too much a um, n- number of years ago, but, um, and, and the t- teachers do struggle, parents and teachers do struggle. So it's an important conversation globally, I think. And so, um, yeah, so I, I'm really excited to, to kick off my live with something that's, that's so really urgent and important. That the way I'd like to start this one is uh, because I usually ask for, you know, what if I say the word belonging to you, what do you think? But I'd rather start with asking about Jason's strengths and superpowers. So I want to I want to look at the asset based rather than the deficit. And then we'll start talking about his ADHD and and your journey. But I want to know what are what are Jason's superpowers? Do you want me to answer that or you? You answer it, but I might like answer it. Okay. 
he'd like me to answer. And if I forget anything, he'll let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. Wonderful. I like that. Good arrangement, Jason. <laughs> it's good. It's a good idea. Um, Jason is brilliant. Jason is extremely curious. And something that strikes me about him is that since a young age, he was curious about things outside of himself. So civil rights issues, politics, recycling, plastic, uh, why it doesn't rain where we live. I mean, it just goes on and on. He's very interested about the world. He's very empathetic. And I've read that a lot of ADHDers are. And I don't know if it's because they receive so much negative feedback um, that they become more empathetic souls. Or if it's part of ADHD, I'm not sure. Um, but he's very empathetic. And he's also, and one of the reasons why I think this book was possible is that he's very articulate and he's very self-aware at a young age. So he's able to express himself in a very honest and, and open fashion that I think at 44, I'm still struggling to do sometimes. <laughs> I know I'm almost 65 and uh, you know, it's just sort of come to me recently, but sometimes I wonder if I have it all under control. So yeah, that that's wonderful. That that's really amazing. It would, you know, you often hear that students um, who are, are very active, who you believe are, are not really paying attention in the normal sense of paying attention are really super focused, hyper-focused. And I think you've mentioned that also about Jason, is that there are things that come in um, that we wouldn't think uh, as teachers or as parents that they're really paying attention, but they, that they are. Um, so I think it's so important for us all to feel a sense of belonging in the classroom um, and just in general. But I think probably part of uh, Jason's journey uh, and maybe even yours as, as a mom, uh, was that fact that you didn't feel that you belonged. And so I, I, I know this was one of the uh, later chapters, and, and I'm sure it's probably one of Jason's uh, big challenges at school. So let me know a little bit about what those challenges are and, you know, sort of how, how you've helped him through it. Do you want to talk about belonging or do you want me to? First of all, did I forget any of your superpowers? No. I got it? Soccer. Oh, soccer. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. He was ticking them off as you were saying them. Sports in general. Um, <laughs> I don't really know what that means. So can you like answer that? Then I'll try to answer it, I guess. Oh, belonging? Like, have you ever felt isolated or like you weren't a part of the group or kids didn't want to play with you or... Like you weren't accepted in the classroom? Normally, if I wasn't accepted in the classroom, then I would like go play something by myself. Okay. So you just kind of went and so did So I was kind of isolated, but mm -hmm. um, I always had like that nearby friend. So. Okay. So you didn't feel too isolated? No. No? No. Okay. So I guess he didn't feel too isolated. I felt like there was times that you might have felt like you weren't accepted. Did you not? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. By kids or by the teachers? Um, kids. Yeah? Yeah. And that's something I talk about, too. I think that was more when he was younger, so he may not mm -hmm. be as present to those memories right now. Um, right. But definitely when he was younger, he had a lot of impulsive behavior mm -hmm. and could even hit or um, throw things and, and things like that. 
So that was a little off-putting, obviously, to other children. And that's mm-hmm. something that I think is really important when we look at inclusion, for it to be a meaningful space. We can't just, you know, throw everybody together and we're all going to do great. We really need to have some training for the other kids as well to understand why children with ADHD or autism or dyslexia, you know, why they may have difficulties with different parts of learning or behavior. Um, you right. Know, work that yeah, and, and you talk about that in, in the chapter about, and you talk about the inclusion model and all of that. So I'd, I'd love for you to talk more about that. Um, you know, how, how does that work? Um, what advice can you give teachers and maybe even parents for making sure that happens? Because obviously, though, the one of the ways we feel like we belong is when we feel included, accepted, valued, all of those things. And so what are some of the ways that we can make sure that not just our ADHD students, or um, but all the ones that you've spoken about, but all of our students feel a sense of belonging because we all come into the to the classroom and the space with different types of you know behaviors and attitudes and so forth. Uh, we don't all think the same way or do the same things the same way. Absolutely, and I think it starts with changing our lens as teachers. So there was an incident that I did share in the book where, you know, I was on my like 500th phone call about hearing about Jason being, you know, bad and getting suspended or having his lunch recess taken away. And, you know, this stuff was kind of constant for a few years there. And um, I was, it was the end of my school day and I had returned a call to an administrator about him that I saw on my phone. And another teacher walked in my classroom as I was finishing up this call she overheard kind of what was happening and the administrator was telling me, and this was pretty, you know, business as usual for me at that stage in our lives here that, you know, Jason had gotten into a scuffle with another child and they pushed each other or something in a line. And maybe you kicked mm-hmm. something, I don't know. There was, you know, some, you know, physical uh, stuff that mm-hmm. wasn't acceptable and, you know, they both got detention or whatever the punishment was. But then at the end of it, she said, And I told Jason that other kids don't want to play with him because of the way he behaves and that he has to understand that. Remember that? And I don't remember the wording exactly. I tried to be pretty accurate in the book, but that was sort of the sense. And, you know, I mean, I'm pretty bottom line. I'm I'm from New York. And I thought, well, she's not wrong, you know, but it hurt. So I I was holding back tears and I said, okay, you know, and I I got off the phone kind of quickly. And my friend that my coworker and friend that was standing there said, you know, my son has Down syndrome and nobody would ever tell me that. And nobody would certainly ever tell my son that. Mm. And I, I said, well, your son has Down syndrome. I mean, that would be pretty cruel. Right. And she said, well, but your son has a, con- a neurological condition also. So really what's the difference? Yeah. It's a mindset, right? Yeah. And that was, Honestly, that was something that changed my whole lens, even as mm-hmm. a mother, because I realized that I was allowing a certain amount of abuse or um, inappropriate, you know, I don't know the, the term at the moment. The reaction, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Towards mm-hmm. my son, given the fact that he does have a neurological condition, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not fair. But then, of course, it's not fair that he hit another child. So I think that when we look at belonging and inclusion, we have to look at being realistic 
about the group of kids that we have, which every year, every semester, you know, depending on what level you're at, it's going to be a different group. Right. And I think of, I think of Rita Pearson. She's like one of my edgy heroes. And she says, you know, we listen to policy that doesn't always make sense. And we teach anyways. And I always thought, you know, as a teacher, you close your door and it's you and 30 or 40 kids, you know, and you have to make this be a positive learning environment and you have to reach everybody and, and you just, you do it, you know? And I think that you have to be realistic about the group of kids that you have at the time and who's coming from what backgrounds and what strengths and what cha- which challenges. Mm-hmm. And you really do have to, you know, one year, it may be appropriate to incorporate conversations about what it feels like to be blind or to have Down syndrome or what, you know, depending on what group you have and what experiences are there. But we have to be proactive about that. We can't just throw a bunch of children together. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily against inclusion. I think it has great potential. I just think that teacher education and our our addressing our classroom culture has to keep pace with this mm-hmm. idea of inclusion. We can't right. do the support. Yeah, I, I think it's also about how we look at behavior. I remember um, when I first started teaching, the second or third year, I had a student who uh, just by chance sat at the back of the class and we had sort of old style desks. So they had the desktop and then there was sort of a, a, a shelf underneath mm-hmm. where they kept their books that they weren't using, their pencils and things like that. And uh, and the whole time that I was talking or, or the students were talking um, she was playing with things inside and looking down and whatever. And, you know, and so I went around to her and um, I asked her a question. She knew the answer right away. And normally what I would have done is said, you know, stop playing with the things in your, in your desk. But she obviously, I didn't know if she had any kind of diagnosis or anything like that, but um, she obviously needed to be playing with something in order to be able to, to focus and so, you know, I know one of the, the things that you talk about in the book is how we look at, at their behavior and, and not just of the students with ADHD, but in general. So what are the kinds of recommendations you have for, for teachers and parents in terms of looking at these behaviors and, and how did you manage it yourself? I think that teachers, a lot of teachers, not all teachers, a lot of teachers we're biased towards compliant behavior because because of our, you know, it's almost like you parent as you were parented. So I think there's still that sort of natural reaction where we teach the way we were taught. And, you know, when we were children, no, you you weren't supposed to be playing with something. There wasn't a thing called fidget toys or sensory devices. So, you know, we just think everyone should sit there, you know, with their back straight and their, their hands folded in their lap or whatever. And I think that I'm glad that we're evolving as a society and beginning to question um, children's needs. But in all honesty, we still have a long way to go. I still have a lot of conversations around Jason's behavior where I have to really introduce this concept of, you know, I feel that you're looking at my son through a lens of conduct and rules in a classroom And I would like for just a moment, if you would look at his behavior through a lens of his behavior as a message Mm -hmm. and his behavior within the context of somebody with ADHD Mm -hmm. that he has. And that piece is 
very, very hard for a lot of people because, you know, for many reasons, again, we go back to how we were taught. We don't always have the training, the awareness, Mm -hmm. but just getting people to stop looking at it as you're being naughty because you're messing with stuff in your desk right now as Mm -hmm. opposed to, oh, okay, she might have a need for a fidget toy and that might be how she's fulfilling that need. Mm -hmm. Um, And the very title of the book came from Jason always saying, I can learn when I'm moving. I can listen when I'm moving. You know, it was, and it was hard for me to understand that for a while, but yes, it's a need that he has. He is hyperactive. He hardly ever sits. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) What is that, Jason? I'm kind of representing that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will tell you my, my, uh, my second son. So I have, I have two boys and a girl. They're all adults now, but my, my middle child, my son, Mashari was never diagnosed with ADHD or ADD, but I sometimes wonder if that's something that I probably should have looked into, but just wasn't aware of. And I'll tell you a story. When he was in high school, I used to sometimes help him study So he would bring his book or his questions to me, and I would ask the questions. I'm a very calm person. And so, you know, I was sitting, and he would get up, and he would start pacing and answer the questions. And I remember, uh, this was years ago, but I still remember it. At one point, I said, Mashari, you're making me nervous. Can you sit down? And... He sat down and he could not answer the questions. He said, Mama, I'm sorry. I have to move around. Otherwise, I can't think. And so, I mean, he was already in high school. He was probably in 10th or 11th grade by then. And I I sometimes look back and I think, hmm, maybe I missed something. I know when he and my husband talk on the phone. I don't know if Jason is like this or he has an opportunity. I imagine he talks on the phone sometimes. They have to pace. They, they have to walk around. And so I, I just started not ignoring it, but I understand it. And uh, it doesn't make me nervous anymore because I, I know they have to do that. So, you know, that's one of the things, like you said, we have to sort of change our lens and look at things a little bit differently. I'm, I'm curious um, from uh, if Jason wants to answer this or if you want to answer for him, Nicole, in, when he's in the classroom, are there certain things that he finds or has found trigger him to to start, you know, feeling like um, he needs to do something or is the movement constant? And, you know, what are the kinds of things he communicates to his teachers or you communicate to his teachers in order to look out for? Um, because I know it, it, uh, there is some impulsivity and so forth. So I would love to know, you know, how that feels from from his point of view. Do you want to answer or do you want me to answer first and answer I'm sorry, I'm, my brain's going to work first. I'm going to work plus right now. Okay, so you want me to go first? Yeah, sorry. Okay. That's okay. No, don't worry about it, Jason. That's all right. Um, The biggest thing, I think, overall, is that, you know, and I saw somewhere that ADHD moms, it was like a joke on the internet, like, okay, at what point in the semester do you have to talk with the teacher? You know, because they're always sort of, we're always like wondering, I think, is a lot of us ADHD moms, like, should I tell them right away? Should I let kind of happen a little bit and then talk to them? You know, but but there definitely does always kind of have to be this talk. Like, okay, this is what works. Yeah. This talk. is what doesn't. The big talk. The big talk. The big talk. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
And um, one of the things I always tell them is that Jason does not need the rules to be explained to him over and over again. Um, as teachers, we want to like re-explain uh, the rules. Mm-hmm. And it's not that he doesn't understand the rules. You know, he's very... I have nailed in my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got him. I bet you do. I bet you do. You know what ex- is expected of you. I bet you do, Jason. Yeah. He does. And it's more about helping him create that space between emotion and action. Or when he's getting worked up to help him have a landing pad. Mm-hmm. So that could look like um, it, it has to start with a strong relationship with the teacher. You really have right. to work with your ADHDers. And then... He doesn't necessarily need, you know, Jason, we can't throw pencils because that hurts people and, you know, all this stuff. He knows that. He it's, knows that already. Yeah. Exactly. It's it, more it, my reaction. Exactly. Like a natural reaction sometimes. So what's more helpful for you than Jason? Don't throw the pencils. Um, trying to help me cool down. Yeah. So just. Exactly. So just maybe giving yeah. him, like he likes to go by himself sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes to leave the classroom and go with a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he just take a walk up and down the hallways, I imagine is helpful. Yes. He likes to be able to have the freedom to do that or stand outside. Mm-hmm. Um, he also enjoys being sitting by himself sometimes, even though mm-hmm. he's very social. I mm-hmm. used to be concerned when he was little, um, like on carpet time. You know, when they do that, like, circle and all the bracelets in the carpet. And they would put right. Jason, yeah, and they would put him in a chair. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, you know, as a parent, like, hey, don't isolate my kid like that. You know, why is he in a different chair than everybody else? Yeah. But then I started to learn that he preferred it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had to have Oh, mind. okay. So his choice. Hmm. Yeah. He felt like yeah. there was movement. Yeah. Less, you know, kids wiggling around and stuff. So he was... See, all that stimulation is hard for him. It's a lot of input. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was more comfortable on a chair, you know, with the group, but kind of with his own boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important. Like you said, the relationship with the teacher is just as important as his relationship with his peers in the classroom. Um, Having that ability to be able to ask the questions and find out exactly, you know, either what the trigger is or how he's feeling. So that's that's the next thing I wanted to ask. You know, you mentioned in the book about um, when he was in preschool, they had a social emotional learning uh, kind of uh, lessons and things like that. And that was really helpful as a foundation for for Jason and uh, to learn about emotions and things like that. And I think a lot of kindergartners or preschoolers go through that but then they don't really know how to name their own emotions or talk about those. Uh, We talk about big emotions or the big feelings. And even for adults, we need to be able to do that. So we need to start early. So talk to me a little bit about that because you do have that in the book also. I think that that laid the foundation. Um, uh, It it gave Jason a really good tool and me a really good tool as Mm -hmm. we went through this journey because from a young age. Do you remember with Miss Jennifer when they would teach you to label your emotions by the, the faces? Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Okay. And he used to always say frustrated, but he would mispronounce it and it sounded like a bad word. Do you remember oh. that? <laughs> I saw that in the book. I, I thought to myself, oh, no wonder she didn't spell it out that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was kind yeah. of Because he was like three and be like, I am, you know. 
Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, which he probably was, but he wasn't supposed to be saying it that way. No, but he didn't know what that was. <laughs> oh gosh! Yeah, yeah. No, that's been really helpful because a lot of times we make assumptions. I found myself making assumptions about how he feels, like with the box, right? Yeah. So somebody. I don't remember what grade that was, but at some early grade, somebody drew a box with tape around his desk. And they said, because he moves, oh. and then he's double jointed everywhere. So he does like all these weird yoga poses during class. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, he's pretty distracting. So she put him in a place where other people didn't, you know, really focus in on him and then drew a, a box with tape around his desk. And at first, oh. he was really like offended. Like, what do you want? You know, what's next? Are we going to put like a scarlet letter on him? Or like, you know, put me in a cage. Put him in a cage. You know, like it was oh, just like, my kid here. But yeah. then I realized because the next year at one of our meetings, he asked for a box. He he told the teacher that well, I, help if I had a box. Mm -hmm. And then to realize that he has a need for movement. So when you delineate literally a box. You're giving him permission to move within that box. And he yeah. doesn't he doesn't want to annoy other people. He just right. wants to move. So you've given him a clear mm -hmm. place. Yeah. That's like, wonderful because that's that's a way for him to be able to self-regulate, which is which is one of the things that he obviously needs, you know, we all need to learn, but especially for him, it's really important. And so now he knows that if he has that visual and he's not supposed to move outside of that, then he, you know, he's able to, um, to self-regulate. Are there ways that, that he's able to um, self-regulate based on or co-regulate with others? So are the things that his teachers do uh, as a signal for him to be able to self-regulate? There have been a lot of signals over the years. Um... And I, I, I want to say that everyone that's given him a signal, I'm sure they were well-intentioned, but the signal system works best when it comes from him and then it's negotiated with the teacher. I see. Interesting. So I don't mean to say that anything he asks for, he should have, but mm -hmm. sometimes they give him signals I don't think he really relates to, or there's been times when he wasn't even comfortable using them because they were too mm -hmm. obvious to everybody else. Um, oh, so it drew attention to him. Yeah, that, that would be fun. doesn't do. Oh yeah, that was on Zoom. He didn't like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the she told me to unmute while I do it too. So basically, it looks like I'm like. Um, so basically, I have the yellow square around me. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, and you're the only one with that yellow square, which signal like an alien signal. Oh, yeah, that doesn't feel good. Yeah, it was right. too obvious for him. So he right. didn't like. And then you know, sometimes teachers become frustrated. Like, well, I gave you a signal, and it's like, well. He's not comfortable with that signal, so that's not really a you know a good system. Yeah. It has to be a conversation, definitely. Yeah, and and you know I think that's really important that we think of our students as as especially since you said Jason is so articulate and he is so self aware that we give them credit for that, and that obviously we, we don't let them do whatever they want, like you said. However, their contribution to the conversation is really valuable because if he doesn't relate to the signal or whatever, you know, whatever is happening, um, he, he's definitely, it's not, not helping, right? It's that it, there's not going to be that self-regulation as a result. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something that, um, 
I'm a big proponent of student choice and student voice in general as a teacher. And I, I really just think that student choice and student voice has a huge place in working mm -hmm. with learning exceptions because we really have to be realistic. And even as a parent, like I was, there's a few things like I, I shared that I was like even offended about, like, what do you mean a square round to my son? But he likes it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah makes it so you know just really understanding their needs not what we think they need yeah and when you find out that it was something that he, he realized he needed um and perhaps if the teacher hadn't done that the first time and and like you said nicole teachers don't do things in order to upset a child they're doing things to try to make sure they can keep the class going and to, to try to have the the student be able to regulate himself within those boundaries. Um, and it's, but sometimes we do need to listen to them if they, if they have something, something to say. So um, going, going back sort of to that, the social emotional and uh, talking about big emotions, are there opportunities or does he need opportunities? Students with ADHD, do they need opportunities to be able to talk about their big emotions when they get angry or frustrated and is it more appropriate for them to do that in class or with a counselor? How, how do you sort of organize that? Um, what about you? What do you think? It could depend on different school years. In general, mm -hmm. you prefer to speak one-on-one -on -one than with people, no? Yeah, like um, uh, last year I did uh, Mr. Nelson's role. Yeah, he's found like a pull-out counselor that, that mm -hmm. can be him helpful. Nice. Um, in general... In general, Jason's kind of a private guy, which is ironic that he's willing to share like this. But, but, but well, I'm, I'm really excited that he is. Thank you. I know it's so early for both of you. Oh, no, it's fine. I think that when he has big emotions in those, in those moments, he doesn't really want to share. I don't feel like you're comfortable sharing to a lot of people. With, with yeah. Like he'll often come to me and say, Mom, I need to go in your room and talk to you. You know, mm -hmm. sisters to hear. So, right. Well, in general, he doesn't want his sisters to hear things. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a sibling thing. I certainly understand that. Yeah, that's another story maybe. But yes, in general, he does like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and I think also one-on-one -on -one is good for him at least because of the stimulation piece. So in a classroom, just the actual activity and the lights and all that can be um, kind of helping, not helping him to calm down. So removing him from that space to a quieter space is right. a, a great thing. And that's not always available at schools, unfortunately, because, you know, as we know, we don't always have enough counselors on staff to, to be able to handle, um, you know, depending on the numbers at the school. Right. So would you suggest in those cases that there's some designated space or way for the students to be able to calm themselves or calm down or or you know, even another teacher who has an off period at that time that the student trusts, um, I suppose that there are ways to do that, right? There are, and, and it's not even like he necessarily needs um, a conversation always, because there are times that he would be sent to a different classroom with a teacher that he feels comfortable with overall, mm -hmm. but the teacher might've been teaching and he didn't even interact with the teacher. He would just go sit in the back Mm. or calm himself. But I think definitely for Jason, at least removing him from a setting is key mm -hmm. to de-escalating things. Oh, I'm going to add to that. Because when I'm in the in the cool teachers, let's just call it cool teacher because I don't know what to call them. 
in the cool teacher's class, then mm-hmm. it, I feel like it's a safe environment. Yes. And, and that's a big part of belonging, actually, feeling, feeling that safety. And so establishing those relationships, feeling that you can trust that teacher um, not to call you out in a way that, you know, makes you more upset. All of that has to do with, um, you know, feeling that you're in a safe space and that you can be your authentic self. You know, that's what Brene Brown talks about. It's not about fitting in. It's about being your authentic self. And if you have to try to be something else that you're not, that's really frustrating. And if I had to do that, that would make me upset also. And so it's it's nice to be in that safe space where you feel valued. You feel that people understand you. They know how to react to you. And, you know, nothing's perfect. But overall, you feel that if you have something to say or you, you, you need to walk out of the classroom, you need to stand at the back to sort of separate yourself, that you're allowed to do that. And then how do you get the other students to understand? We sort of started with that a little bit. But how do you allow the other students in the class to understand that, you know, each one of us has something special about us and we should respect that. And because sometimes as teachers, we, you know, we talk about uh, what's, you know, equity and equality, right? What's equal is not really equal. Um, We're not all the same. And we look at fairness and things like that. Well, if we do that for, you know, Jason or, Joe, then, you know, we have to do it for everybody. But in, it's, in reality, it's, it's not that way, is it? No, it's not. And I, I find that fascinating because we look at like things as teachers, like differentiated discipline mm-hmm. um, and, and all those sort of aspects of, of differentiation based on needs. And I had an interview with this, this young lady in first grade, uh, Amira, in the book. And I found it super interesting how when I was talking to her, you know, as a teacher, I could kind of read between the lines and see what interventions, you know, because we have names for everything, her teacher Mm -hmm. it's a place. Right. This environment where she has this friend that she talks about that goes on Godzilla mode when he gets, Mm -hmm. when he gets angry. And she knows that he has ADHD because, you know, they've been open about that within the classroom Mm -hmm. environment, which of course, you know, goes back to her choice with the parents or the teacher, excuse me, the student, but in this case, okay. that's what's been done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's found a way to understand that sometimes he gets mad. And then I found it really interesting because it didn't occur to me that Amira needed a reassurance that when her friend got mad, that he would calm down and still be her friend. Oh. And, you know, that didn't occur to me. And she said, well, my teacher, Mrs. B, explained to me that when so-and-so gets angry, he just needs to go to the counselor and have him help him calm down. But when he comes back, we're still friends and he doesn't mean to have yelled or whatever he did. Oh. So, you know, just, I guess her teacher did a really good job of explaining that impulsivity, mm-hmm. how that doesn't necessarily change the overall emotion. And it's right. not that Mira should be repeatedly um, subjected to somebody yelling or, or going on Godzilla mode but that she's able, her teachers created an environment in which she's able to understand that, okay, this is what my friend does sometimes. And he mm-hmm. go to the counselor and then he comes back and he's in a whole different space. Yes. So, so personal. Yeah. And isn't that wonderful as a life's lesson? Because we're going to be interacting with people 
who are all different with all different types of behaviors, we need to understand where our boundaries are and the fact that um, it doesn't become, like you mentioned, Nicole, that it doesn't doesn't overwhelm her or become uh, abusive in a way, but that she does understand that if that behavior happens, that friendship is still there. The behavior was separate from that friendship or, or their relationship as friends. And, you know, for a first grader, that's, that's really awesome. She's the one in the picture where you have the picture at, at her back and she's got her hand on, on the other, other student. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, that forms lifelong relationships, right? Uh, which is what we want to have for, for our children is that they have those deep and meaningful relationships uh, with others, with their peers, and know who they can go to when, when they need to be able to regulate, when they need to feel that, you know, they have that safe space. And so we, we really need to, to have that. I want to ask you, Nicole, because I know here it's gotten a bit better in Kuwait, but for a long time, it was the labels, you know, we, we don't want to take our child for testing because then our child will be labeled. And oftentimes, especially with ADHD, you find that um, after you've sort of eliminated the other possible causes for the behaviors, that it's really important to also exclude the ADHD for the hyperactivity and the impulsivity and so forth. But many times when I was principal in the uh, elementary school, parents were reluctant to take them to do those kinds of uh, assessments, even when they were old enough, because they were afraid of the label. What will happen if my child is labeled? What would you say as a parent and as a teacher, what would you say uh, to, to parents about that? Or what do you say to parents when you've had students in your own class like that? And I think that this, this label idea in many cases, and I don't know how things are in Kuwait in this, you know, in education. When I was a kid, children that had special needs were like someplace else in the back of the school on a different bus, like very segregated. And I think that I feel like a lot of adults have this idea that if their child has a label, they're going to be separated from, mm -hmm. from society, mm -hmm. from, you know, the school society. Yeah. Because they're different or odd or yeah. Exactly. Like, like we're still operating with that paradigm when in reality, when we label something, all we're doing is giving it a name. I'll mm -hmm. be honest. I couldn't wait for a label for Jason because he was, I really couldn't because he went like, <laughs> because he was acting in such a way that preschool, mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where right. to come from. Did I need to be stricter? Was it my parenting? So when we finally got a label, it was something I could Google and I could learn about and I could understand. Right. And, and do something about. Exactly. It was empowering for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I bet it was also, although he was, you know, young at the time, I bet it was helpful to Jason also that he knew it was something that he could, you know, he, he could get skills to cope with, but that was the way he was. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was just the way, way he is uh, with all his strengths and all the other things that go with it. Um, you know, all his superpowers that at least he he knows and you know can say to others, well, you know, this is this is the way I am, and I, I'm working on 
as I go through the years, I'm working on getting better and better at, at coping with it and dealing with it. But it'll always be there. I think it did take pressure off him. But I think as a young child, most likely what it did for him was have me stop being so erratic around it. Mm -hmm. um, because I was going back and forth from, I need to be more understanding to, I need to be stricter to, you uh, know. Yeah. So I, I mean, poor kid, like, you know, I'm all over the place trying yeah. to handle his behavior. So I think when I stopped and just started to understand what it was, mm -hmm. it probably took a lot of pressure. Well, I'm sure I took a lot of pressure off of him. Yeah. So I'm really pro-label. Let's, let's put names on things and understand them. Yes. And would you say that consistency is one of the things that, that children like who, who have ADHD need? I think consistency, but I think that if you take a step back even before consistency, when we have the correct lens... Mm -hmm. looking at it for what it is and through this right. idea that he has different needs and behaviors messages I mm -hmm. think that to me is the biggest shift if I could get teachers to consider that and parents to consider that idea that concept that's where we really change how we interact with our kids with ADHD and we're mm -hmm. not from this punitive frustrated um, feelings and, and attitude towards them because right. it's really unfair to constantly be chastising them and all this sort of thing that we get into doing for let's say you know bouncing off the walls or being hyper or you know mm -hmm. and it's it's a physical need that they have to move you know so once right. we understand that we go away from that and we, we we stop arguing with it and fighting against it mm -hmm. and we start kind of working with it and right. I think that's where then consistency can happen but first we have to have that lens shift right yeah, so it's a sort of step-by-step -step thing. For those who are watching and listening or those who are watching the recording, obviously there's a wealth of information from Nicole and Jason's point of view, but you also have included others, other experts. Um, there are a lot of strategies in the book. And so, um, you know, I would highly, highly recommend getting the book I bought the, the Kindle version so I could have it right away because being so far away, I can't, you know, order it and get it tomorrow on Amazon Prime. But I, I definitely want to get the book and um, have you both autograph it when we're able to hopefully see each other in the future. But I, I wanted to ask if you and Jason have anything else that you would like everybody to know about teachers, parents, others who are ADHD or might be and haven't really discovered what the problems are? Is there any other advice you want to give or anything else that you would want to, to tell everybody who's watching? Anything else you have to say? No. No? no. I think it's just touching to us and gives me hope that, like you mentioned, all of these education experts shared strategies in the book. It's touching to me that people read the book, that they listen to these kind of conversations, that even though we don't have all the answers, none of us have all the answers, we're still working through this, right. that so many people care enough to mm -hmm. listen and to try to understand um, and to listen with an open heart. Right. And, you know, when I reached out to the people that contributed in the book, Barbara Bray and Laura Robb and Dr. Brad and Dr. Lightman and, and Shilpi Maja, and there's so many of them, Melissa Sidebotham. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of like, you know, those moments in life where you're like, well, we're going to see what happens. You know, I'll just, I'll ask them, Alice Aspinall and Lindquist. And 
I reached out to them because I felt like they were able to give me whole class accommodations in their content area. That would be best because even though accommodations for each student are wonderful, there are definitely things that we can do for the whole class proactively that yes. meet different kids' needs and that are better practice for everybody, in fact. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it you know, takes some of that pressure off the teacher where you know, I have 170 kids and I have all these different lists of accommodations. Well, there are certain things we can do for everybody that proactively meet these needs. So just you know, having these education experts willing to share um, what they can do in the book and their their expertise was was pretty amazing for for a mom that struggled. <laughs> yeah, and and the fact that you know you were able to share your story and and Jason's story, and Jason was also able to share his voice. Um, as he, you know, as he spoke it, which is, which is really an awesome way to, to collaborate uh, mother and son. And uh, that must've been amazing to see it in print because it just came out a week ago, right? I don't have it. That's the funniest thing. Oh, how fun. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a copy of it. We got a, um, a, a proof copy and we were super yeah. excited about that. Yeah. Okay. And then I left it at my grandmother's house when we brought her back to Phoenix. We live um, almost three hours away from there. Okay. I, my grandmother grabbed it and hit it. I don't know. Maybe. She <laughs> <laughs> We're so proud of both of you. I, I mean, just, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, true, Jason. But she definitely manifested that because she was so excited that we left it there. No, oh, yeah. She says manufactured instead of manifested. <laughs> 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 so we and we haven't received the author's copies so there's a lot of people that i i would you know i'm going to send them books but i, I just haven't even received my own so sure well uh, i'm sure that we'll see it on social media when you do get those copies and you and jason open that box and see the actual books in the box oh that will be an amazing time thank you both so much for joining me today. And uh, I really appreciate it. I, I think, uh, like I said, I highly recommend that everybody get the book. So if you want the link to actually to Nicole's blog, and uh, many of them are really, really great blo uh, blog pieces also, uh, it's www.nicolebiscotti.com. And she also has the link to uh, Amazon where you can order her book. And like I said, you can get it on Kindle, but hopefully you'll also want to get it, uh, the actual physical copy. Thank you both so much. And I look forward to um, all the success for the book and, uh, and to meet with both of you again sometime soon. Thank you so much for having us. It was awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for, for joining. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're inspired by what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about belonging, check my website, Journeys to Belonging, that's Journeys number two belonging.webstarts.com. See you next week.